Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're continuing our series in the Prophets. Here we're going to begin our look at the book of Daniel with an introduction to the book. We did have some technical difficulties while recording this episode, so on the back half there are some microphone issues that'll pop up here and there. So be patient with us, we have worked that out, and we will try to keep that from happening in the future. Do be sure to check out our YouTube channel, which is linked in the show notes. We are currently working through a short series on the Tabernacle with Alistair Roberts. With that, we really hope that you enjoy this episode, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here are Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeffrey Myers discussing the book of Daniel. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Jeff Myers, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John. Uh, Brian Motes, as usual, is in the background recording, and he'll be editing and smoothing out all of the strange uh, pauses and uh, the heresies that uh, we we utter during the course of the next hour so that uh, you get not only a well-recorded podcast, but you also get an orthodox podcast. Brian's the one who's responsible for making sure that that's the case. We've been in the middle of a, a series on prophets. We did an opening discussion of prophetic ministry in general and the prophetic works of the Old Testament and some discussion of New Testament prophecy. And then we spent a few weeks looking at the book of Jonah, which is an easy entree into the prophetic literature. It doesn't contain any complicated, uh, mysterious prophecies, but uh, is a pretty straightforward narrative. Uh, but that got us at least into that got us li- at least into uh, some questions about uh, about how prophets work and what they do. Today, we're going to start the book of Daniel, and we're going to spend the next number of weeks, perhaps a couple of months in the book of Daniel. I think it'll take us a while, especially as we get to the second section of Daniel after chapter seven, uh, out of the narrative sections. We'll be going to uh, uh, into the complicated and mysterious prophecies later in the book. But in this episode, we're just going to introduce the book of Daniel and talk about the the book in general, and uh, talk about some of the features of the book and the setting of the book. The first couple of verses of Daniel's prophecy give, uh, give us uh, the general setting. I'll read those two verses. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels of the treasury into the treasury of his God. So that indicates that uh, the book of Daniel was going to take place during the time of the exile when the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar has taken at least some of the residents and some of the treasures from Jerusalem and taking them, taken them to Babylon and placed uh, particularly the treasures of, his, uh, of the temple into the house of his own God. Of course, it's important to recognize that the taking of Jerusalem is not a one-time event. Uh, we know this from the book of Second Kings and Chronicles uh, that indicate that there are several different sieges and conquests of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. This is the first of those, the one that, the, by which Daniel gets to Babylon. There'll be another one uh, sometime later, about a decade later, when Nebuchadnezzar comes back, he captures Jehoiachin and takes Jehoiachin off to exile in Babylon, takes more of the treasures of the temple. And at that point, you have other uh, figures. Ezekiel 
is taken in that second deportation from Jerusalem to Babylon. And so his prophecy is given while Ezekiel is in Babylon, just as Daniel is given while Daniel is in Babylon. They're contemporaries. Meanwhile, of course, Jeremiah is uh, back in Jerusalem. He remains in Jerusalem until the end of his life when he's when he's packed up and taken to taken down into Egypt. But uh, he's prophesying in Jerusalem at the same time that the events that are recorded in the book of Daniel and the prophecies of Ezekiel are being given in Babylon. But uh, those you have two, those two, two deportations, but then you have a third a return of Nebuchadnezzar where he besieges the city. He takes the city. Uh, that's when, during the reign of Zedekiah. And he takes, he takes the city, burns the city, breaks down the wall, burns the temple, uh, and then uh, takes the remainder of the prominent people from the city of Jerusalem, leaving only the people of the land, as Kings calls them, uh, in Israel. So it's important to see that that chronology that there are those three primary deportations, primary invasions by Nebuchadnezzar, because it helps us to see that there's an overlap between what's happening in the book of Daniel and what we see and read about in other books of prophets. Uh, the the events that are recorded in certain parts of Jeremiah, as I said, are taking place simultaneously with Daniel. And so to try to get a full picture of what's happening. When we look at the book of Daniel, we have to keep that in mind and, and look at these other books as well. Peter, that seems to be an important insight for understanding at least the first six chapters of Daniel, that Daniel is in Babylon for about 20 years, you know, 605 to 586 before, so 20 years before Jerusalem falls. And apparently also there's some uh, interaction, there's some epistles that are sent back and forth between Daniel and uh, Jeremiah, so that the people in Jerusalem know what's going on, or at least some of them do, at least the leaders do, know what's going on in Babylon while Daniel is ministering there, and uh, apparently also how Nebuchadnezzar has come to faith. And it seems to be just another strike against the people of Israel during Jeremiah's time for not submitting to Daniel's, or, or to the Lord's call for them to submit to Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar and trust in God's, you know, God's care for them. Yeah, I, I picked up that uh, that point many, many years ago. I was at a conference with Jim Jordan in uh, Lincoln, Nebraska, and I was speaking about Jeremiah and talking about exile, thinking about exile as a, a way of thinking about the current situation of Christians in, uh, in the West. And I had completely neglected the fact that uh, Jeremiah, when he's encouraging people to submit to Nebuchadnezzar, is encouraging people to submit to a Nebuchadnezzar who is already under the influence of Daniel. Uh, and so as Jim typically does, he, he kind of raises questions that just kind of reorient everything I was saying. I had to scramble back home and rewrite my lectures during the course of the conference because he, he made this important chronological point. So when, when Jeremiah is in, instructing people to seek the peace of the city and to submit to Babylon and to uh, not to continue to resist, Part of the reason, rationale for that is because Daniel is already a prominent person in Nebuchadnezzar's court, and they can be assured of a, of a protected place. Daniel, we'll, we'll talk about this, I'm sure, at, at, at more length, but Daniel is a kind of Joseph figure who's sent ahead to prepare a place for the rest of Judah. As they go into exile, there's going to be a safe haven for them when they get there. Hmm. Right. That, the other thing that Jim has brought out, I remember years ago, that you know, kind of blows your mind is to remember that this community <clears throat> just before the exile in Judah is a, is a relatively small community. Um, 
He recently had an elder who went and visited Israel and came back. And one of his big impressions, and I've never been to Israel, maybe some of you guys have, is how small the area is. You can stand on at Jerusalem or on the Mount of Olives and basically see the whole land. But but anyway, the, the point that Jim made was that all these guys knew each other. So Jeremiah and Ezekiel uh, and Daniel, they were they probably all went to Sabbath school together, or um, at least Daniel was being taught by uh, Jeremiah in Sabbath school or something like that. Of course, that's fictional, but there, there's a great deal of um, personal connections here that we often forget about. And once you think about that, it kind of makes things, well, it does make things come alive a little more than maybe we're, and, and, and we're used to reading all these books as separate kinds of um, things and don't think about the connections. And I think that's one of the things that Jim brought uh, to my understanding is trying to think about how all these things are connected. The book begins with the third year of Jehoiakim, which is a very important year within the book of Jeremiah, although there it's the fourth year. Um, the different reckoning, I think, is presumably because of different ways of numbering the years of kings, whether the accession to the throne or um, some other way of, of numbering. You have a difference between the Babylonian reckoning and the reckoning within Judah. But that year was a pivotal year within the wider region. Um, the battle for supremacy had of the region had taken a decisive turn with the defeat of the Egyptians at Carchemish by um, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar rises to um, become this great authority and power in the north. And lots of Jeremiah's prophecies are delivered or in the context of this fourth year. This is the year in which things turn and there is this clear sense of foreboding about the direction in which Judah's history is heading. When we think about the um, land of Israel or the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, it's important to consider the powers to the north and the south, whether that's Assyria or Babylon, or the Persian Empire to the north, or to the south, the power of the Egyptians, those really shape the relationships within the region of the land with the surrounding small kingdoms that can often be caught up in these larger alliances or um, being vassals or um, tributaries of these larger kingdoms that really dominate the region. It's as if that whole region is the centre of the chessboard and you have these great powers, back row powers, that are fighting out with the pawns. And Israel and Judah can often find themselves in this position trying to scrabble to determine what is the most prudent alliance. So within the reign of a number of the kings at this point, there is shifting between whoever seems to be the most likely to come out as the top dog. So for Zedekiah, there's a period of time when he's hoping to have relief from the Egyptians, but in fact, it's a false dawn and the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar take them over. But there is this more general, um, the world that we see within um, the surrounding of Israel and Judah becomes more clear in this period of history, whereas before we see the 
fate of the land very much within the confines of that particular area. At this point, we see the broader framework of the empires and how that is shaping what's taking place in Israel and Judah. Yeah, and that's, that's kind of background for what happens, what, what's prophesied later when you have, uh, in the final prophecy of uh, Daniel, you have this contest between the king of the north and the king of the south, and they're competing for control of what is called the beautiful land. So those are that's not talking about the same powers, but you're talking about the same dynamics where you have a north and a south power with Israel in the middle as the as the uh, as the contested territory. Meanwhile, the events of verses one and two seem to have a kind of ominous feel to them for um, for Babylon at least. You have this incident where basically something of God's is taken and then housed in a foreign kingdom. Various temple vessels are stowed in Nebuchadnezzar's treasury or whatever, as if it's a sort of trophy of war. And it feels to me like it functions like a kind of depth charger. It just sort of sits there for a while. And in the end, when Belshazzar uh, takes it out and mocks it, it you know goes off and, and brings the house down. And you, you can think of a few similar incidents like that in scripture. You can think of Samson, who's, who's taken down to the temple in uh, Gaza and brings it down or the um the ark that's carried away to dagon's um temple even joseph is quite an interesting example there he's uh, his coffin is referred to by means of the same word that's used for ark and it sort of sits there in egypt and then after the plagues it's it's brought back and i think a lot of that is in mind in the first couple of verses here yeah, I think uh, I've, I've described that as uh, in terms of Israel. Israel is not so much dispersed as deployed, or at least the vessels are not so much dis- dispersed as dis- deployed. Yeah, I think depth charge is a, is a really good analogy because God is going to God is going to fight for His people while in ex- while He's in exile along with them. Mm, yeah, could even think of someone like Samuel who is basically placed in the midst of a corrupt priesthood and against the backdrop of Hannah's song where she talks about you know the high powers being humbled um, that comes to unfold in Samuel's ministry and the reference to the land of Shinar here also calls back the original call of Abraham this is actually a reversal of Abraham's call Israel as Judah is being sent back to the land from which they were originally taken and there's the background of the um, Tower of Babel, that entire story, which is at the beginning of Israel's life, it now seems as if there's, if this were a great chiasm, it's back to this formless and void state before they were ever called. And so the reference to the land of Shinar here, I think, re- reminds us of that earlier story back in chapter 11 of Genesis and maybe sets up some of the themes that we'll see later on in the book, where these two great causes, the cause of God's people of promise, and then the cause of this great world-straddling empire gathering all the peoples together are coming into direct collision. Yeah, I think that's that's one way to to uh, think about the the exile. I think the it seems like there's another uh, overlay or template you can use uh, that Jeremiah uses because Jeremiah often describes what's happening in Jerusalem as if Jerusalem were an Egypt. talks about plagues coming on uh, Jerusalem and Judah uh, as if it were in Egypt. Of course, Jerusalem and Judah are full of idols, and their gods are the ones who are being brought down. 
So actually, in some sense, the exile from Jerusalem is an exodus, and Babylon in that scenario plays a kind of interim wilderness role until Israel comes out of the wilderness of Babylon and back into the land. There's another dimension to this, and that is there's a kind of Joseph theme going on here with Daniel. So he goes to Babylon to prepare a place for his brothers, and uh, there he's able to assist them. there are visions that are given to Nebuchadnezzar, who is something of a new pharaoh, and that distress him, and he can't find his wise men can't give him any answers, any interpretations. Uh, Daniel alone is the one who can answer it. Um, and then this pharaoh is converted, like the old pharaoh under under Joseph's ministry, um, and then then later on a pharaoh. A, a uh, ruler in Babylon arises who did not know Joseph or did not know Daniel. Uh, it's explicitly t- or it's explicitly told that Belshazzar, and then there's a sort of Passover and Exodus in Daniel six. So um, there's there's multiple layers here of of various older biblical themes going on. Another dimension to what's going on here, I think, is that there is a conflict of laws taking place. So Israel is used to uh, being her own boss to some extent and defining her own laws. But now Israel is plunged into a foreign land and foreign overlords and time is reckoned from now on, according to um, the kings of Babylon and later Persia and so forth. And they come into contact with all sorts of different laws which seem to escalate to some extent so in in chapter one the law seems to concern um, diet and there there is as such a a chance that these rights will be defiled by um, a diet that's been prescribed to them in um, chapter two there is a a more deadly um, decree which is going to kill all the wise men in the palace until Daniel intervenes and chapter three the decree is to worship uh, to bow down or, or to be slain. Um, and then in chapter six, uh, you get this far more all-encompassing um, decree that everyone is to pray only to Darius, which um, I guess takes things from the um, local dimension. So this isn't just the palace or the plain of Jura. This has now gone into the private region and into private religion and into people's prayer life. And it, it seems that there is this... Um, escalation which, which takes place. One of the unusual things, of course, about uh, the book of Daniel is the mix of languages that we have. Uh, the first chapters is in Hebrew. Uh, the last uh, chapters, 8 through 12, are in Hebrew. But from chapter 2, the fourth verse of chapter 2 through the end of chapter 7, that's all in Aramaic. And that section hangs together. Uh, we could talk about the, the structure of the book in a, in a little bit, but that that Aramaic section does hang together as a as a unit, not just because of the language, but because of the themes of the different stories that are told there. But that combination of different languages is unusual. We've mentioned the the plain of Shinar as the location uh, where the vessels are brought. That alludes back to Babel, so we might have a a continuation of a Babel theme here with the multiple languages. We have uh, the the language spoken by Jews, and then the Aramaic language, which is a more international language, is spoken throughout the the region. So we have, on the one hand, a a land-based language for certain parts of Daniel, and then we have this imperial-based language for other parts of Daniel. What is the rationale, do you think, for having that combination? 
Um, well, in other words, chapters two through seven are written in tongues. Um, and so you, you, it's hard not to think about uh, the Song of Moses and the threat uh, against Israel that uh, God would begin to speak to them in uh, foreign languages and languages they would not know. That, of course, is also repeated in uh, Isaiah 28 and 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, so it was happening during the time of Paul. Paul refers to Isaiah 28 because it was going to happen uh, then as well. So it appears like the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled here in some sense, and this is God's judgment or God's attempt to, um, uh, uh, what, uh, how do you put this, uh, cause, uh, cause the Israelites to be jealous about what he is now doing among the nations. That's an interesting observation, Jeff, because in um, Jeremiah, I think it's probably chapter 25, we get this sequence of judgment whereby a, a cup um, is first drunk in uh, Judah um, and then he's passed around the nations and it, it brings judgment. And so Israel are the first to be judged and then it sort of goes out and ends in Babylon. And you can't help think of thinking of Belshazzar drinking from the cup there as, as Babylon fools. But um, your mention of the tongues theme plays into that, Jeff, because initially, obviously, um, Israel are catapulted into this uh, environment where they don't understand the language so easily. But by the end, Belshazzar has this writing on the wall, which he can't understand. And that's a, a precursor mm -hmm. to his um, fall. And so that seems to be going on under the surface here. Mm -hmm. Might also take a more positive take on the uh, on the tongues idea that the, the language uh, or the, the works of the Lord are being proclaimed in this more international language. You can, you can see it as a judgment against Israel, but it has that positive side to it. Nebuchadnezzar himself proclaims the sovereignty of God at the end of chapter four, after he's been humbled and has one of the, you know, the, one of the most uh, memorable statements about the, the, uh, the kingship of God in the entire, in the entire Bible. And it's proclaimed in this international language, not just to Israel, but it's going to the Gentiles also. There's also, I think, probably a change in focus that accompanies the change in language. So the vantage point of um, chapters two to four, I think, is very clearly kind of from within the kingdom of, of Babylon and looking looking there at what's um, going on. And it doesn't seem to be um, particularly Israel focused um, from chapters eight onwards, though, the visions are are very different. I mean, Daniel isn't at least contextually situated within the palace uh, at the time. And he's really, it seems as if he's at least in vision standing in Israel near the temple and seeing these beasts coming. And it particularly focuses upon the way in which they defile um, the temple and the way in which people like Antiochus will uh, do things of, of that nature. So I wonder if there's a, a change in perspective, which is um, signified by the languages. Further to Peter's point, we could maybe think of the way that something like the book of Jeremiah comes to us in two different editions. We have the Greek and the Hebrew edition, which suggests that these texts are circulating in different parts, some in Egypt, some in Babylon, some still within the land and among those who remain there. And there is an international character 
to the word of the Lord now. It's going out to many different contexts. There is a dispersal, dispersal of the Jews among all the nations. And the multiple languages are one expression of that. Um, could maybe see this as part of a scattering of Israel that corresponds to the scattering of the nations as a result of the curse of Babel. But there is a divine purpose in this, like the depth charge that um, James spoke of earlier, that their corresponding scattering is now actually going to serve as a scattering of blessing. Yeah, and James' comment also makes me think that uh, there's correspondence between the way the book is written with this, this double linguistic usage and uh, Daniel and his friends position within, within the, uh, within the empire of Babylon. Uh, they each have both uh, Hebrew and Babylonian names. Uh, they are faithful Jews uh, keeping the law and resisting when, when uh, the Kings want them to do things that are against uh, God's law. But at the same time, they have a foot in an important positions in the uh, kingdom of Babylon. So they're, they're having this kind of double identity, and the book itself reflects that double identity in the languages that are used. Makes me think of the way that we've seen many of these things in our study of the book of Acts, the way that the church is operating within, within a number of different worlds. And particularly in characters like Paul, we see um, someone with um, limbs in various worlds. He can operate within um the world of Greek philosophy to an extent in Athens. He can go to Rome and he can act as a Roman citizen. He can act as someone who's a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And in all of these worlds, he has some stake, but he can't be fully contained by any of them. And what he represents in the word of God that he bears is likewise unconstrained and can travel and traverse travel across and traverse worlds yeah something we could throw into the mix while you're talking about the um, word of god being expressed in multiple languages is that we've even got some greek loan words in uh, chapter three which describe some of the instruments and still even have a greek case ending so their origin becomes fairly clear and so it really is this uh, multicultural uh, sense to the thing i mentioned the structure of that aramaic section it's a fairly clear chiastic structure from uh, chapters two through seven. Uh, you have the, the frame of these two visions, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar in chapter two, and then the vision of Daniel himself in chapter seven. Uh, they're very, they are using very different terms and symbols, but it's uh, portraits of uh, the same sequence of kingdoms and empires. So in chapter two, you have the four materials of the statue that represent four coming empires. Well, Nebuchadnezzar is the first of them, and then the three empires that will follow. They have four beasts coming up out of the sea in chapter seven that correspond. Uh, they're the same. Uh, they're the same uh, same sequence of empires pictured differently. Uh, chapters three and six match pretty nicely. That you have the the three the three men uh, who resist the the king's command to bow down to his image. That's chapter three. They're thrown into the fiery furnace, but they're rescued from the fiery furnace. And in chapter six, you have a similar kind of. A decree, uh, Darius decrees that no one should pray to anyone but himself. Uh, Daniel defies that by continuing to pray to the Lord. Uh, and so he's thrown into a lion's den, but the Lord preserves him in the lion's den. So you have those two uh, threats and rescues in chapters three and six. 
Uh, and then in chapters four and five, you have two episodes that focus on the the reactions of the Babylonian kings to the Lord. Uh, chapter four is about Nebuchadnezzar's dream of himself as a tree who's cut down uh, that prophesies his being uh, sent out from human habitation, living with the beast for a time until he's humbled. And then he comes and makes this great confession of God's uh, dominion. Uh, he recognizes Yahweh as king of kings, as king over even the great emperor of Babylon. And then Belshazzar's feast, you have the opposite kind of portrait of a, of a Babylonian king who is, he's the one who's using those vessels that James uh, talked about that, that are stored away, but now they're coming out. And that's the, when they come out and they're used to worship other gods, that's the, that's when the depth charge gets, gets detonated. Uh, but there's an explicit reference in that experience of Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel mentions that Nebuchadnezzar learned a lesson about humbling himself before the God of heaven. And uh, Belshazzar has not learned that lesson. So chapters four and five fit together because there's an actual reference uh, from in chapter five back to chapter four. So those chapters fit together neatly, which means you have this, uh, and generally you have this kind of structure of Hebrew, Aramaic Hebrew, chapter one and a few verses is Hebrew. Then you've got the central section two through seven that's Aramaic. And then you end up in Hebrew. So you have an ABA kind of overall structure to the book. Perhaps one of the most... Um, debated issues in relationship to the book of Daniel, which um, touches upon its language at various points, is the dating of the book. Um, I wonder what you all think about the questions here. I found Andrew Steinman's treatment of this in his Concordia commentary very helpful, observing the ways in which the language actually supports an earlier date. Um, but it has been a matter of considerable contention. I'm not sure what uh, Steinman says, but uh, the fact that Daniel writes in the first person in at least f five different places, seven, eight, nine, 10, and 12, to not accept that would mean that this was all just pseudepigrapha. And that'd be hard for anyone who takes the scripture seriously to not at least confess that Daniel writes those portions. Uh, now, who writes the other portions? It's um, it's not clear. Maybe one of his associates, maybe Hananiah, Mishael, or Azariah. Maybe chapter four is written by Nebuchadnezzar. But they do, just the fact that Daniel has these comments about him writing these things down, and it spans the whole book. Is that something that Steinman brings out, Alistair? Yes, his, his main concern is to respond to some of the objections that people have made that it could not be an early book because of right. um, certain aspects of its style. So the arguments clearly are liberal arguments. They're not based upon any, um, I mean, this is not something that's arising out of the uh, commitment to scripture in any right. way. It's, right. it's pushing against the commitments that we would have to the authority of the text. But yet, it is important to have answers to some of these concerns. And so I think the way that he responds and shows that um, even the reference to Daniel within some of the Dead Sea Scrolls evidences how it was treated as an authoritative prophecy very early on. And if it were only written 50 years before that, uh, it's referenced as an authoritative prophecy it would be strange indeed. It would be uh, a sign that this text 
had within a matter of a few decades become regarded as an authoritative text that was reliable, that was had spread, first of all, and that it was based upon actual historical events, which would be very unusual. But when we see the different languages that um, there's a sort of confluence of different languages here. There's the Persian and the Greek loan words, there's the Aramaic, there's the Hebrew, and each one of them have different characteristics that can help us in the question of dating. And he argues that as we pay more attention to these, um, it actually supports an earlier date. But I'd be interested to hear James um, give some thoughts on this. I, I mean, I suppose I'm... Um, I'm not confident that it can be used, that the linguistic features can be used to support an earlier date, just because, to be honest, I'm hugely sceptical of our ability to date things just on the basis of linguistics. I mean, largely when we have original material, um, i.e. sort of things that you're trying to date when when they're actually first um, written and we have the original manuscripts, things like epigraphic orthographic concerns will really um, play a much bigger part than the, the type of vocabulary and the type of language which is used. Um, so I guess I mean like I guess the point I'm making is that when you have the choice between um, something like looking at the style of handwriting and looking at the language, um, language is, is very much considered a, a second fiddle way of doing it. And um, I'm just skeptical for other reasons as well. Like in any linguistic society you'll have all sorts of different dialects at play at, at the same time some of those might be based on region you know whether someone is i don't know if you put it in terms of england like you know north south or central or whatever sometimes it might be based on class it might be based on the amount of foreign contact you have if you're a merchant or a diplomat or whatever and i, ju I just think that it's very quickly done in these sorts of issues that time becomes basically the only explanatory variable. If there's like a big linguistic discrepancy between two things, um, time is thought to be the feature that explains it. And I'm just, I guess, sceptical of, of that whole process. I don't think we've got the data to um, to say much about, yeah, when, when Daniel was written. It seems like we're thrown back on the contents of the book itself. If you can't, if you can't judge by the presence of other languages, um, other kinds of considerations. Uh, it seems to me that the book itself is written, particularly in the opening sections, the stories that are given are written for people who, who are in exile to assure them of the Lord's care for them in exile. The exile is like a fiery furnace. It's like a den of lions. And yet the Lord is going to lead them through. Daniel is, like other prophets, Daniel is a kind of embodiment of Israel. And so as he goes through th these different experiences, and as his associates do, then they're being uh, representing what Israel as a whole is going to go through. And I like the idea, I think Jeff brought this up earlier, but uh, um, I got this from Jim Jordan's commentary, Handwriting on the Wall, that portions of Daniel might well have been written before the whole book is compiled, and then circulated, sent back to uh, Jerusalem, so that the people in Jerusalem know what the Lord is doing while they're in exile, or the uh, chapter four, which may come directly from Nebuchadnezzar in, in some form, that it's an actual decree that he, and a story that he presents, that he, that he broadcasts. Uh, that's an attractive idea because it, it seems to make sense within the context. I mean, this is not a conclusive argument for a, a, an exilic dating, but it makes sense that the 
these particular stories would be written for the purpose of reassuring and encouraging exiles. We certainly see something similar to that in the book of Jeremiah, where there are clearly a number of different stages of the book's construction, different editions that it passed through. And it's being written at certain points in Jeremiah's life. He's sending material in different places to Babylon at the end of the book to um, read out before the king in chapter 36. And at various other points, you can see seams within the book that represent various levels of the text construction. And I think in the book of Daniel, we probably see some similar features that would suggest different stages in which it has come into being. Another thing I think that is important that has often been levelled as an argument against the reliability of the book is the lack of confirming historical evidence. And one thing that is interesting here is the way that this was formally raised against the character, for instance, of Belshazzar. Belshazzar. But later we discovered there is confirming historical evidence for him and that argument falls away. But Darius the Mede is perhaps the key figure here. Presumably we'll be getting into his identity at some later point. But as James suggested earlier in relationship to the language, there's good reason for caution. The evidence that we're going on can be fairly slight and the absence of evidence for some particular figure or some particular event is not as strong an argument as we might initially think. Of course, if we take um, the book of Daniel to be authoritative as we do, we do actually have evidence for these figures, but um, there should be confirming evidence. There is often confirming evidence elsewhere that comes up as we discover more about the history. One of the things I think is valuable about uh, Daniel and other books of the exilic period, other historical books of the exilic period, is the perspective it gives us on exile because, uh, and and I think it's a different perspective from that of many Christians. When, When Christians think of exile, Christians often think of exile as kind of a the, the state of the Christian church at all times in all places. Uh, and that means that it's a pilgrim church. It's always small and beleaguered. It's always uh, minority and oppressed. And uh, this is a part of a picture that is uh, hostile or skeptical about any notion of Christendom, any kind of, any kind of public role for the church or uh, power for the church. And I think it's important in looking at uh, and looking at the actual exile in the Old Testament, that although Israel is in fact under another a foreign power, uh, they're scattered, they're uh, they're captured and transported to a new place. Uh, the main people we know from the exilic period are people who rise to great prominence within different empires. I mean, Daniel and his friends are high in high positions in Nebuchadnezzar's court. Daniel remains and or comes back to a high position by the time the Persians take over. Esther and Mordecai are in high positions in the Persian Empire. Nehemiah is there uh, before the king of Persia, and Ezra is at least known to uh, the uh, Persian king because uh, he he commissions him to go back to Jerusalem. So all of the prominent people we know in exile are people who who are new Josephs, as it were, that are uh, raised up, ascended up within the exile, uh, and that just gives a different picture than many people have of what exile involves. There is a certain kind of weakness involved in being an exilic people, but the Lord 
regularly puts chosen people in high positions in order to accomplish his purposes, particularly to protect and guard his people, uh, but accomplish other purposes too. Because um, I mean, uh, Nebuchadnezzar does uh, is um, other does other things under the influence of Daniel than simply protect the Jews. That that's an important component of the exilic situation that we don't want to miss. That's a really great point, Peter. Um, I mean, what happens is a lot of us. A lot of pastors, we look at Daniel and we emphasize God's sovereignty and control over, you know, all of world history, especially the powerful kingdoms of the world. And that gives us some comfort. And we'll note that all through, even, you know, chapter 7 through 12, all these visions that God is the one who disposes of world kingdoms and they serve his purposes. And yet we forget that the exiles have not only, as you said, a position of power, and influence, but their influence is successful. Uh, they actually end up transforming uh, the, these kingdoms in surprising and unexpected ways. So Daniel's influence in the court of Nebuchadnezzar leads to his conversion, which then leads to him proclaiming the sovereignty of the true God throughout his entire kingdom, and also presumably making changes in the legal structures uh, and all that for protection of God's people and for for more for 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 just justice. And I think sometimes what happens with uh, the the exilic kind of mentality and mindset within at least American evangelicals, as you say, is that we're just never going to have any success. So just give up on give up on that, give up on influencing, give up on anything changing, and just kind of wait for heaven. Um, and wait for God to act, and forgetting that God actually acts through Daniel and through Esther and Mordecai. And not only does he act just to pluck individual people um, and put them into his kingdom or, you know, give them assurance of, of heaven and salvation, but actually to change the world. It can be very easy to think of the period of the kings as the great period of Israel's power, um, the period where they really have some weight to throw around on the world stage. And in many ways, what we see is the kingdoms of Israel and Judah are destroyed, overrun. There is a retreat of that sort of human sovereignty from view. And the sovereignty of the Lord over all the nations is put forward in far sharper relief. But with that, you also have a different sort of sovereignty expressed by human beings, which is that of participation within the divine council in a prophetic capacity. Mm. So Daniel is a man of prayer. He's someone who is in um, the Lord's sovereignty over the nations, his purposes for the great empires. He is a participant in that conversation. And the Jews more generally are experiencing not just a sort of judgment in the exile, but there's a possibility of a sort of leveling up to a new form of participation in God's rule, not just ruling under him, but being part of his rule as part of the divine council in a prophetic capacity. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. 
If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Thank you.